Well, Jeremiah hears all this and he continues to write. Behold, verse 27, Days are coming, yamim ba'im, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. He's talking about great increase. The same promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to sow the seed. And this is going to spread out. It's going to be numerous. Verse 28, As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And verse 28 is the hinge point of Jeremiah's prophetic calling. Remember chapter 1, verse 10. The Lord said to Jeremiah, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow those four things. In this verse he adds, and to bring disaster, because disaster was about to fall on Judah. And, he says, I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. What's this here for? What's it about? The Lord is saying, you're going to watch four of these things come to pass in your lifetime, Jeremiah. You're going to watch the plucking up, the breaking down, the destruction, the overthrowing. You're going to see that as proof positive that I mean what I say. But because you see that happen, it is simply verifying, assuring that the last two are also going to happen, the building and the planting. Just as surely as you see these first four, the final two are going to take place as well. I will build and plant, declares the Lord. Verse 29, In those days they will not say again, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. This is apparently a popular saying in the days of Jeremiah in the land and Ezekiel in Babylon. Ezekiel 18, verses 2-4, through he says the exact same thing. This whole idea of the sour grapes. And this was the saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What was meant by it? It was Judah's way of blaming their fathers for their present circumstance. We're in all this trouble because of our fathers and their idols. If it weren't for them, everything would be okay here. It was their way of casting off all responsibility to mom and dad. And to grandma and grandpa. And to the forefathers. It's their fault. It's their fault my life is this way. Have you ever said that? My life would be so much better if not for that parent. Not for my mother. My father. The choices they made. How they sinned against me. What they did to me. That's why my life is this way. And I think the Lord would say to you, time to be free of that. Time to let the blame go. Time to allow me to heal your heart and you stand whole before me. It's you and me. I am your father. Let that stuff go. Judah's blaming their fathers for their misfortune and it's a false proverb because it abdicated personal responsibility for their own sin choices. Judah went into captivity because of what the people of Judah were doing at that time. And you know this because when Jeremiah began, the people were given one opportunity after another to repent. All you got to do is repent. All you have to do is turn around and do the right thing. Stop this sin. And they wouldn't do it. But they couldn't see it because they were too busy blaming the past. 
The Lord's righteousness sets this record straight. Each person will die for their own sin. How do you know every man, every woman has a sin nature? Because we decay. Because we're dying. Because you reach a point in your life, you hit that kind of apex where you think, yeah, well, everything's good, and all of a sudden, it just goes downhill. And it does for everybody. And it doesn't matter what your diet is. And it doesn't matter what your workout regime is. The body keeps corrupting. And the mind keeps forgetting. <laughs> it's proof of our sin nature. Second Corinthians 5.1 We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan. In these bodies we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Lesson I went to to see Doreen Dang, who you know just passed away this past weekend. And we went in and she was not really conscious at the time, but her cousin Penny met us at the door. What an amazing woman. I am so impressed. And we talked for a few minutes with Penny before we went in to see Doreen and to pray over her. And Penny said something, and it actually shocked me in this moment. But she made this comment. She said, even death reminds us of God's faithfulness. She's talking about her cousin right in the next room who was headed that direction. We came to pray. Les and I, in fact, when we walked in there, we weren't sure, are we here to pray for her healing? Or to... You know, just ask the Lord to come get her. We weren't, neither one of us really knew which way we were supposed to be praying at the point. And that, unless that was one of the things that kind of started me thinking, she's going home. And the faith, again, an amazing statement. Even death reminds us of God's faithfulness. And then Penny said this, because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And I just went, I have never thought of death that way. The enemy, you know, the bad thing, the thing that God rescues us from, I have never thought of death as God's faithfulness. But it is, isn't it? It is proof that God does what He says He's going to do. That even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself, and He says the soul that sins will die. But, But what if you give your life to Jesus? Then you're saved. But chances are you're still going to go through the first death. But you're saved from the second death, the spiritual death, the eternal death. I'm still hoping to miss the first death. You know. Amen. Yeah. Let the body corrupt, but Jesus come get us now, and there will be those people. Perhaps us, I pray it is, who go home in the rapture and do not taste death. People like Enoch. People like Elijah. I get the chariot. Who are just gonna go home in the rapture of the church. But our bodily decay is proof of our sin nature. Verse 31. You know what? 31 through 34, skip it. Because we're going to sit in this uh, probably a week from Sunday. Really spend some time in it. Go down to verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. (laughs) Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and they can't, if the foundations of the earth 
searched out below and they have not been, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He's just making a clear statement that I am for Israel, that I always have been for Israel, that I always will be for Israel, that there is no replacement of my people by anyone else. This is unequivocal, guys. And I don't know how Christians can read this and believe any other. How can you read this and not know and not trust the Lord when He says, I will not cast off this people. I have not turned my back on them. Don't become arrogant. Paul says in Romans 11, the root supports you. It's not you who support the root. Israel supports you. Keep that in mind. Behold, verse 38, days are coming. Declares the Lord. When the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb, and then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Now I ask you, does that sound like a promise God would go back on? So absolute, so sure, and so reassuring even for the people of Judah as they're about to go into captivity. And note this, after the exile, the Lord made a similar promise through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 14.10 says, All the land will be changed into a plain from Gabah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. This picture of the completeness of the whole city, it is unquestionably a statement of the future kingdom. Because the city is rebuilt in its entirety, not for the people, note this, not for the people, but for the Lord. The city becomes holy to the Lord. Right now, Jerusalem, and I love Jerusalem, and it's a cool place, but it is not completely for the Lord. There's a lot that still goes on, even in Jerusalem, that is not holy to the Lord. But a day is coming when it will be. He he spells it out specifically. He says from the Tower of Hananel, that was in the northeast corner of the city, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, to the corner gate, probably in the northwest corner of the city wall. Gareb and Goa, these two places are unknown, but Gareb is thought to be perhaps on the west of Jerusalem, Goa on the south of Jerusalem, he says the valley of the dead body, bodies and the ashes, that is likely the Hanam Valley, where the sacrifices were given to the pagan gods, to Molech. He says, and all the fields, as far as the brook Kedron, now we're headed back to the east, all the land running up to the east of Jerusalem. Finally to the horse gate, which is on the southeast corner of the city, Nehemiah 3.28 tells us. Seven locations are given in this verse. Verse 40. Seven locations covering all directions of the city of Jerusalem, a complete sanctified city. That's the idea here. A city that's holy to the Lord, even the Hinnom Valley, the once polluted valley of dead bodies and ashes. You know, again, if Christians would simply read our Bibles, we would share unqualified and unwavering support for Israel owning the land in which they dwell. All of the land. 
We wouldn't waffle on it. We wouldn't wonder. We wouldn't think twice. We'd say, no, the land belongs to Israel, and we support that. Why? Because Scripture does. Because God made it clear, all the land will once again belong to His people. Now, chapter 32. It gives a clear indication of the Jewish ownership of all the land in question, even today, indicating, gang, or including the Palestinian territories in the hills of Samaria. The date, 587 B.C. The backdrop, the siege of Jerusalem. Watch this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard which was in the house of the king of Judah. Because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy? Saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, and he will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. (laughs) See, now this is Zedekiah quoting Jeremiah, speaking the word of the Lord. And he's doing it, I think, similarly to the way I just read it. Why do you speak this way? Zedekiah is frustrated. He is finally so put out by Jeremiah, he locks him up. He throws him in prison. And what's so ironic about this is it's almost a twisted sense of spiritual superstition on Zedekiah's part. We've got to shut up Jeremiah. Because the more he talks about these things, the more they happen. It's his fault. So if we can shut his mouth, then none of this bad stuff's going to happen to us. And I thought, how interesting, as if by his prophecies, Jeremiah somehow is bringing bad times to the country. And it gives me understanding as to why our country hates the word of truth. As to why Christians are put down or dismissed or shut out of the equation. It's why people oppose and would silence the Bible. Because they don't want to hear about or face the consequences of their own sin. All Jeremiah was doing was bringing the message. And the message spoke, here are the consequences of your sin. And Zedekiah said, I don't want to hear it anymore. Shut him up. As they would say to you, Christians, shut up. Stop telling us about this. Let's close the Bible and let's get it out of our schools because, man, it's too convicting. We don't want to hear this anymore. Pastors in churches saying, I can't preach that passage. That's just too convicting. It'll make people uncomfortable and they won't want to come back. And it's exactly, by the way, what yesterday and today's Supreme Court hearings are really about. This is not about someone's rights. This is about truth and the unwillingness of our country to have any kind of a moral compass whatsoever. That's the problem. That's what's being debated, but nobody knows it. Well, they have to have rights. You've got to give the homosexual couple the same rights as the heterosexual couple. It's got to be rights, rights, rights. And everyone is taking and setting aside the word of truth. No one in any of the Supreme Court hearings has said, I wonder what God has to say about this. 
how does the Lord feel about this? Why don't we start there? We don't want to hear it. Why don't we want to hear it? Because it convicts us of our sin. So let's shut it up. Let's keep it out of the court. Even as Jeremiah is pulled out of the court and thrown into prison. What are we to do? In this country, in these days, what are we Christians supposed to do? Well, we've talked about this before. John was told in Revelation 10:11, even when the word is bitter, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. When they try to shut you up, speak the word again. When they tell you to be quiet, speak the word again. Jeremiah is in prison and he's having good dreams. And he's writing the book of consolation. He's writing about God's grace that would come to the people after the punishment that was so certain. So verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is an anatote, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. This is the law of the Gaal. And we've talked about this, the kinsman redeemer. The entire book of Ruth is about the kinsman redeemer. The right to buy back or the right to step in. In Ruth's case, it was the right of Boaz to marry her, to bring her under his covering, for him to marry her as her kinsman redeem her. But this also speaks specifically, Leviticus 25.25, of land holdings. And this is where it's real important to pay attention. If a fellow countryman of yours pays, uh, becomes so poor... He has to sell part of his property that his nearest Gaal, his nearest kinsman redeemer, is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. It was so important to God that the people of Israel keep their inherited lands in the family that would belong to Judah would stay in Judah. What belonged to Benjamin would stay in Benjamin. What belonged in Ephraim would stay in Ephraim. And so if you were an Ephraimite and you lost your land, you couldn't pay your mortgage anymore, you were going to lose the whole farm, the first thing you did was go out and find a relative and see if you could find a Gaal, a kinsman redeemer, to buy that land and keep it within Ephraim. And so that's what's going on here. Apparently, Hanamel, son of Shalom, so uh, Jeremiah's uncle's son, so his cousin, is coming to him. I'm losing some land here. And you're the next in line. You're the kinsman redeemer. I need you to buy this land. That's what's going on. And then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, which is in Anatote, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And I like what Jeremiah adds. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. God said it, and then it happened. I knew it was God's Word. It's confirmation. Which, by the way, is something else to look for. God speaks into our lives. He indicates to us decisions to make, directions to go. How do we know it's truly the Lord? Confirmation. He speaks, but He confirms His Word to us by the Scripture. He confirms His Word to us sometimes by circumstances. Rick, I want you to go do this. Really, Lord? Yeah, I do. Okay, I'm going to step out of faith and see what happens. And then circumstance, once you've stepped out of faith, sometimes supports exactly 
what you know the Lord told you to do. And if circumstance doesn't support it, if it kind of all falls apart, you realize, oh, maybe that really wasn't the Lord. Sometimes it's by a brother or a sister that will come up to you, unaware of what you're praying about, and say, you know, I think the Lord is telling you to do this. I don't know what this means, and you know because you've been praying about it. The Lord will, will bring confirmation to what He's speaking to you. And that's what happens here for Jeremiah. He hears from the Lord that uh, Hanamel is going to come to him. And so he's thinking about this, and he's sitting in prison by land, and, I'm in prison, and all of a sudden it happens. All right, I know this is of the Lord. Nothing wrong with seeking confirmation, gang. Just do so with thoughtful biblical discernment. Well, verse 9 goes on. So I bought the field, which was at Anatot, from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, and I, I signed and sealed the deed, called in witnesses, weighed out the silver on the scales. And then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, uh, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And by the way, this was a fool's purchase. Think about this. Why would you buy land when the enemy is taking all the land? Why would you buy land when your city is under siege? And as a matter of fact, the city of Anatote at this time was already under Babylonian control. This is like saying, I've got some beachfront property for you in Phoenix. You know, why would you do that? Why would you buy this land, Jeremiah? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to buy a parcel that is already in enemy hands. Verse 13, And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. Because Jeremiah knows, ain't nobody living on this land for at least 70 years. But I own it, and I have the deed of purchase to prove it. So, tuck them away in a jar. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and here's the prophecy, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. That's why you buy land in that situation. Because God is saying, this is a prophecy. What I'm having you do, Jeremiah, is what I am going to do for the people. But still, think about it publicly. What does this look like for Jeremiah prophesying the doom of Judah and buying up land on the side. That doesn't have a real good taste. And some think that perhaps that's what Jeremiah was thinking himself. Lord, I get that this is a prophecy, but this doesn't look good. And so Jeremiah prays. Verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men giving to everyone according to His ways and according to the fruit of His deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, then you have made a name for yourself, as at this day. 
You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with great terror, and gave them this land, which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. And the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fought against it. Because of the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And what you have spoken has come to pass. And behold, you see it. What's Jeremiah doing here? First of all, this is an amazing prayer. This is the same guy who back in chapter 15 was complaining to the Lord. Listen to how his prayers have changed now. What's the difference? Jeremiah is a praying man. You want your prayers to be substantive before the Lord? Pray. You want to grow mighty in prayer? You want to have the faith of an Elijah, the faith of a Jeremiah in your prayers? Pray. And pray and pray. For the more you pray over time, the more you're going to find yourself praying every time. Prayer grows on you. But there's something else I think that's happening here for Jeremiah as well. His faith is increasing. All these things he's saying about the Lord, God knows this. This It's not news to the Lord. All this proclamation, all of this praise, what is Jeremiah doing? He's finding encouragement in his prayers. And Jeremiah is in this place, and so he's praying faith, and he's seeking faith, and he's looking for his faith to be stirred up in this prayer. He prays all of this, and then he comes down to verse 25, and he says, You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The whole point... Jeremiah prays this prayer of faith. He's stirring up faith. He's looking for faith. But at the end of it, he still says, but why are you having me buy land? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. Verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will enter and set the city on fire and burn it. And the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to gods, to other gods, to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. Because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem... They have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hanam to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. 
which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. The whole first part of that prayer, God is pronouncing judgment. This is a judgment that is deserved. This is what the people get. This is what they should receive. The rest of his answer is what they should not receive. But they will anyway. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them and that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart, that is His passion, and with all my soul, that is His intentions. Passionately, intentionally, verse 42, For thus says the Lord, Just as I brought all this great disaster on the people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Fields will be bought. In this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast, it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Check this out. Verse 44 is fulfilled in modern day. And we have seen it. 1901, the Jewish National Fund was established to pool resources of Jews all around the world and legitimately secure land holdings in Palestine. Then Palestine. The first land holding that was purchased was in 1905 in the Galilee near Tiberias. Jews were coming in. The Jewish National Fund was the first of this. Israel Land Fund was second. Other funds were set up. Other wealthy Jews from around the world were coming in and buying land and the Arabs were all too happy to sell it because it was a desolation. Fields will be bought, verse 43. In this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. Israel was that way. Palestine was that way. And the Arabs who did own land in in Palestine, it was so bad, so mosquito-infested, wholly neglected, unusable, uh, boggy, useless wastelands. And the Arabs said, oh, you want to buy land? And they jacked up the prices, and the Jews just paid it. And the Arabs are going, we're getting off great. We're getting steals here. We're unloading dumps for cold, hard cash, totally overcharging. And they were happy to do it. And the Jews were signing deeds. And they were sealing properties. And they were doing exactly what God promised in verse 44. The beginning gang of this prophecy, I believe, started in 1901. And we've seen it roll on. And it will continue. 
And no other people can show their ancient right to the land like the Jews. No other people can show title deeds they purchased. They bought the land. They own the land. Now, I own the land that my house sits on. Some of you own houses or, or own lands. But America wasn't bought. It was fought. We took this country. Most of what is Israel today was purchased before the first shot was fired in 1948. Before the War of Independence, before the Six-Day War, or the Yom Kippur War, or the Lebanon War. Before any of that happened, they already had the ownership. And you hold in your hands a title deed that is the most important documentation anyone should ever need. The title deed of the land of Israel is in your hands tonight. But brothers and sisters, you got to get this. Listen. This, this situation, what happened to Israel, is a type. It's a picture of what God has done, of what God is doing with the whole earth. Quickly, turn over to Revelation 5. We'll end there. Revelation chapter 5. God has given the picture of Israel as a microcosm for what He's doing with all of us. Revelation 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand hand of Him who sat on the throne a book, literally a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. The book is a scroll. The scroll is a title deed. Now those of you who have studied Revelation know this. It's sealed with seven seals because it's a title deed held in foreclosure. This was Jewish standard procedure in the first century. If you lost your ability to pay your mortgage. They would take your deed, roll it up, they would write the cost to redeem it on the outside and seal it up with seven seals. Those seven seals represented how long you had to pay it off to redeem the land. Seven years. And as every year went by, as you paid down, you could break a seal at a time until all seven seals were broken and the land was returned to you, the mortgage was returned to you, the title deed. The title deed that we see in Revelation 5 is the title deed to planet Earth. It's the title deed of the world. Lost in the garden. As Satan brought sin into the world. Through Adam and Eve and and through every man and woman who has ever lived since then. In Jewish law, if, if the man couldn't pay his debts, he lost the farm. But remember what happened. Jeremiah's cousin comes to him and says, I can't pay. Will you redeem the land? You're the kinsman redeemer. And so Jeremiah buys the land and redeems that plot of land in Anatote and keeps it within his family. Revelation 5, verse 4. John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John weeps just as Jeremiah wondered the futility of buying up lost land that was in the hands of the enemy. All is lost. The enemy owns this land now. Why am I buying this? Because Jeremiah is a picture for us of the kinsman redeemer that we see in Revelation chapter 5. Stop weeping, verse 5. 
Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the, with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What does that mean? Listen to the Revelation study and, and I'll, I'll tell you that. Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The Lamb who was slain, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, with his own blood, purchased the land. Jeremiah is a picture of that. Israel is a picture of what God was doing, proclaiming for the whole world. And with Jesus' blood, He purchased what we lost, just as Israel will once again plant and enjoy the vineyards on the hills of Samaria. So Jesus will regain what we lost, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over this earth in His coming kingdom. When's that going to happen? Chene yamim ba'im. Behold, the days are coming. And Father, we praise You and thank You for showing us in Your Word, once again, the measure of Your grace. And Lord, I want to pray simply over our fellowship tonight that Your grace would reign. I pray, Father, we would be those who recognize that we are saved by grace, we worship and live by grace, and we pray that we might understand what it means to show Your grace to the world around us. I pray also, Father, that within this fellowship, we might learn what it means to show grace to one another. May we be obedient people of grace, even as you have shown grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.